Well, we are about 10 days away from Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving seems to be the one season of the year that gets one day and maybe a half day before we all watch the Cowboys play football on TV. (laughs) Halloween, for instance, is now a month-long celebration leading up to one night of trick-or-treating complete with its own lawn decorations and inflatables and invitations and greeting card line and parties that might rival Christmas. The National Retail Federation estimates that Americans spent $10.6 billion on Halloween this past year. The average person spent $100 on decorations, costume, greeting cards, and the like. I hope you are below average. (laughs) Um, One of the things that's we look forward to back in our prayer time. I have some books that have been burning a hole in my pocket, and I know I don't usually do this in a sermon, uh, but Thanksgiving is here, and I have this book, Practicing Thankfulness, Cultivating a Grateful Heart in All Circumstances. If nothing else, at the end of the book, there are a 100 different categories for which we can be thankful. Last year I gave this away. Nancy Bean saw this orange color here and said, this book, Changed my life, my thinking. Well, she's downstairs, and she went through it with Connie. So this book, you're 10 days away, practicing thankfulness. This is not going in the bookstall. This is for any member, because membership has its privileges, right? So this is for any any member here, practicing thankfulness by Sam Crabtree. And I'll get to this in a moment. But we've been going through Samuel, and and what you see in Samuel is the whole storyline of the Bible laid out before you. So as you think about Bible reading plans next year or whatever, I I want to give this book out by Trent Hunter and Stephen Wellham, Christ from Beginning to End, How the Full Story of Scripture Reveals the Full Glory of Christ. If you want to understand how the Bible fits together, so you're not saying this is about how to be a better you and how to get over anxiety in three easy steps because it's a bigger picture than that, here's a book for you. There are two copies of this in the bookstall. But this one is to give away. It's been burning a hole in my pocket since we've been in 2 Samuel 7. So I want to put that out for any member as well. Okay. So that kind of fit the introduction. All right. It kind of fit it. And uh, maybe, you know, we get back to our extended prayer time. We'll, we'll sing songs again and be able to give other books away again. And we'll be able to pray and the like. Okay. So, so once, can we go? Here, here we go. Once the big business of Halloween is over, stores and advertisers skip. Thanksgiving and go right to Christmas. And what's the one thing that we all need, but we struggle to find? Gratitude and Thanksgiving. We don't trade on Thanksgiving in our consumer-based economy. In fact, in our consumer-based economy, Thanksgiving is a foreign currency that we don't spend here. We would do well to adopt the the prayer of the English poet George Herbert, who in his poem, Gratefulness, prays, Thou hast given so much to me, give one thing more, a grateful heart. And a lack of thankfulness is a bigger tell about our condition than we realize. For Paul can write in Romans 1, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness. Why? Neither were they thankful to him. 
Thankfulness indicate, thanklessness indicates our fallenness. And when we pick up in our passage this morning, we're going to find a king so thankful that he begins an official search to find somebody to bless. And just who this king finds to bless comes as a surprise to everybody. We're about to watch the surprising kindness of God's king. God's king is going to show surprising kindness. Would you please locate 2 Samuel chapter 9? It's in the first half of the Christian Bible where we've been the last several weeks. We've been following the life of one of the great kings in history, King David. He's endured death threats. He's established a, a new capital city. He's united a deeply divided country. He's restored the worship of God. And he's brought peace and justice all the way from this map, all the way down here from Egypt, all the way up to Euphrates. That's what God's king has done. In some, he's administered justice and equity to all of his people. The Lord gave him victory wherever he went, Second Samuel 8. And King David not only believed God's promises, but he lived in light of God's promises. We were having this discussion in our small group, and and Hebrews came up. What more shall we say? I do not have time to tell you about David, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and received what was promised. And the point is, not David, but the object of David's faith. And if you put your faith in God's promises and live in light of them, you too can do the same kinds of things for God. What was the secret to David's success? He took action by faith in God and his promises. And you know what the result was? The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David's faith was not great. The object of his faith was great. And by faith in God's promises, 2 Samuel 8, the writer of Hebrews 11, David by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Think about that. He gained what was promised by acting on the promise. That's another message. Now, as the wars of 2 Samuel 8 come to an end, and King David settles now into his God-blessed reign, maybe David starts to sing, Blessed assurance, Jehovah is mine. I in Jehovah am happy and blessed. And why wouldn't he sing that? God had taken him from the pasture to the palace. All his enemies are defeated. God had chosen him to be the king. And making him king, God says, that's just a small thing I did with you. Making you king is a small thing? Because God chose David to give him an eternal dynasty to bless the nations of the earth through one of his sons. So David praises the Lord for this amazing grace. He didn't sing blessed assurance, but he's saying this in Second Samuel 7, because of your promises and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness and you've made your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord, and there's none like you and there's no God beside you. Second Samuel 7 21 and 22. So David's now reflecting on the undeserved grace that God had shown him. And as he reflects, 
He wants to do something. He desires to show grace and kindness to somebody else. Because people who have been changed by by undeserving grace show undeserving grace to others. We show kindness. We show undeserving love not to get God to like us, but because God has already loved us in Christ. That's what happens in our text today. King David reflects on God's undeserved love to him. And now David moves out to show grace and he can't keep his mouth shut. I want to show what I've been shown. And it's not David is not doing this because, you know, it's grace that his parents who worked so hard to get him there. It's not grace that his friends or his coaches showed him because they always supported him. David wants to show grace to a surprising person. And he shows grace to a surprising person because he knows God has shown surprising grace to him. Do you think that you need God's grace? Do you think God has shown you surprising grace? Has God been gracious to you or just nice? Let's read the opening verses of 2 Samuel 9, and I want us to watch God's king show surprising kindness just the first five verses as the tension builds to the high point. 2 Samuel 9, here is what Scripture says. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And so the tension builds. I want you to note first the surprising and strange kindness of God's king. Surprising and strange It's surprising because of the kindness to whom it's surprising because of who David wants to show kindness to. It's somebody in Saul's house. Twice we hear that line. Now, everybody living then and every alert reader now of the story knows that Saul has tried to kill David on a number of occasions. Saul even chucked a spear at David while they're eating dinner. And David, you want to show loyalty to someone in that man's house the dude who tried to kill you and hunted you for years like a wild boar. David, have you gone mad? What a surprising request. And moreover, just a few chapters earlier, a man named Ishbosheth, a son of Saul, had set him up as a rival king with a rival kingdom to David. The house of Saul has been nothing but a source of evil and hardship. And you want to know if there's anyone left in that man's house that you can show kindness to? Do you have a death wish, David? 
Do you know how these things work out when the, when, when, when the rejected family gets back into the kingship again? What an unusual king David is. What an unusual king God's king is. And David's request is not only surprising and startling, it's strange. And yet, if David's request seems strange to us, that's because we've forgotten a promise that David has always remembered. David made a covenant promise with his friend Jonathan decades earlier. We read about that covenant promise as Nick read us through that responsive reading that David made. Back in that chapter, David knows that the king is seething with envy and seeking to kill David because David is God's next appointed king, God's first appointed king. And Jonathan's caught in the middle. On the one side, Saul is his dad and and David is his dear friend. Jonathan takes David's side, not because he hates his dad and dads are dumb, But Jonathan knows that David really is God's chosen king. And here's a small, tiny lesson. There may come points in our lives when we have to side with God over parents. Jonathan shows us that here. It's not desirable, but we obey the Lord no matter what. Well, in the middle of all this, Jonathan realizes how these things go down. I mean, the incoming king wipes out the line of the former king. And given how unhinged Jonathan knows how his Saul is at the moment, he knows that David may be left with no other choice in the future but to protect himself or to take action. And so Jonathan asks David to make a covenant promise. And here's the heart of it. First Samuel 2015 Do not ever cut off your kindness from my family even after you've cut off all of your other enemies. Now David made that promise and now, 2 Samuel 8, the Lord has cut off David's enemies, all of them. And at that moment, the promise now is in play. David turns now to honor his oath. What an unusual king David is. Nobody knows David made this oath now except for David. David honors this old, can we say ancient oath? Jonathan asked him to show kindness and now David is ready to show kindness. Yes, to his friend, but also to the household of the man who tried to kill him. This is a startling and strange request. But before we continue, can we make some brief comments about the word kindness here in the, our translation? Just about all the translations have the same thing. Now, I'm not trying to impress you with this, but you probably know this. The word in the original is H-E-S-E-D. H-E-S-E-D. Chesed, you you probably know that, except you're supposed to say it like you have a hairball in your throat and you're supposed to say chesed. That's what you're supposed to do. So this word appears three times in this story in verse 1 and verse 3 and verse 7. It's there in the story in three times. When And it's the major theme of this chapter. Now, here's what here's what I'm afraid of. We hear kindness and we might think of a teacher's talk 
to lower elementary school children at the beginning of the year as as he or she gives out the rules. Don't run with scissors. Don't talk without raising your hand. Sharing is caring. Uh, Play and be nice and be kind. That's all fine and good, but it's soggy milk toast compared to what the word actually means. It's one of the most theologically significant words in the Old Testament. It's a popcorn word, an important word. Like many words from other languages, one word in English can't capture the range of its meaning. So the translators of our English Bibles translate this word, hesed, with a host of words like this. It appears 250 times in the Old Testament and shows up like this, unfailing love. Kindness, loving devotion, grace, steadfast love, mercy. Do you hear this range of meaning in this word? The songwriter in the Psalms meditates on this one word and riffs on this one word in Psalm 136 where he uses it 26 times as he applies it to his life as he thinks about, here's the word, God's steadfast love. This one word forms the theological backstory and the entire story of the book of Ruth. It's even the very word that God uses to describe the essence of his own character. When Moses wants to see God's glory, we in our opening scripture reading in Exodus 34, God has a chance to say, let me tell you who I am at the heart of my being. And when he explains who he is in the heart of his being, Exodus 34, he says, the Lord, the Lord A God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps steadfast love to thousands. There's the word steadfast love. Thus, this is a word that describes the essence of God's own character. He is hesed. He is kindness and steadfast love and loyal devotion and so on. So it's not an elementary school, first week of school, pep talk word that you use for toddlers. It's the essence of God's character. And it's called steadfast and loyal because unlike our love and loyalty, can I say this? God's love is sticky. It doesn't let you go. His love does not alter when it alteration finds, but it is an ever Fixed mark. Now, back to 2 Samuel 9. So if all of that is behind this word, why did the translators pick kindness if the word is richer than our English word sounds at first appearance? I don't know for sure. But I suspect that kindness underscores the undeserving nature of David's devotion here. One Old Testament scholar explains the choice of kindness here like this. What makes hesed an act of kindness is often the fact that one member in the relationship is in a position to render help to another who's in need and unable to help. Now, do you see this? Kindness, then, can highlight the undeserving nature of the action. It's what you show to somebody who doesn't deserve it, but needs it, who can't help, but needs help. That's called kindness in the biblical sense. It's sacrificial kindness. It's costly kindness. 
It's transforming kindness. It's love to the unlovely that they might lovely be. So kindness here highlights the undeserving nature of this action and the deep need of the other person. And doesn't that fit David here? Because he wants to show kindness to someone, wait for it, in the house of Saul. Somebody who needs help, but can't help. That means, I'm just underlining this, David is not simply on his best manners. He's not giving us the virtue, uh, you know, the epitome of, of a virtuous human being because people should be thankful. Nor is this royal decorum and deference a moment of kingly politeness. No, David wants to display the character of God in his kingdom. Now, where did I get that from? David wants to display the character of God in the kingdom because he tells us that in verse 3. Underline the end of verse 1. He says, I want to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now draw a line and underline the end of verse 3 because David says, here's what's motivating me. End of verse 3. Is there not someone still in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? So do you see that? Behind the kindness for Jonathan's sake, verse 1, is really the kindness of God, verse 3. That's what's going on in David's life. That's what he wants people to see in his kingdom. God's kindness on display. So don't miss the connection. Don't forget the story. Something happened to David that's transformed now the way he's viewed other people, even the undeserving family of the dude who tried to kill him. And what happened to David did not come as he looked inside and he expressed what he thought. The change did not come from within him. It came from outside of him. God's kindness, like the sun, came from outside of his life and penetrated his heart and melted it. True, lasting change comes from the outside and then transforms you inside. You cannot help yourself. Now, God has shown that startling, surprising kindness to David. And David knows it. He writes a whole song at the end of 2 Corinthians, 2 Samuel 7. And why has he shown this to David? Just think again. Remind yourselves. Because David was good. Because God is a, a prescient, top-of-the-line, professional headhunter. And he knows talent when he sees it. Or because God can foresee all the potential in David. I think we think sometimes that God loves us because God's omniscient. And we think it runs this way. So God looked ahead because he's omniscient. And he saw in time that I would choose him. So before time, God says, yeah, I'll choose you too. Wrong answer. God showed startling kindness to David Because God is good, not David. God shows loyal devotion, not because David is good, but because it's in his nature to do so. And the only kind of person that God shows goodness to are people who ain't good. Because those who are whole, they don't need a physician. Never forget, God is the Lord, the Lord abounding in steadfast 
love. So, again, this is not the, re- the result of something that, that even something laid on David's heart. It's something that God had done to David's heart. This is more than a king even keeping a really old promise to a really good friend because virtuous people keep their promises. No, David wants to keep this covenant of surprising kindness because God has made a covenant of surprising kindness with him. He's ready to show undeserving kindness. And he wants to show it to someone who doesn't deserve it because David knows he doesn't deserve it. Listen, listen to how Scottish minister now with the Lord, Alexander McLaren applies this to ourselves, gets this right. Don't don't miss this connection in the backstory of, of this. We must receive mercy from God before our hearts are softened. So then as to give it to others, just as the wire must be charged from the electrical source before it can communicate and light. We must receive mercy from God before our hearts are softened, before we give it to others. So the key to David's surprising desire is God's surprising kindness. God, to use McLaren's illustration, was the electric source and David is the wire. Makes me ask this, if I can push this more. Have you ever been shocked by God's kindness? Because when you're shocked by God's kindness, it will truly change your life. That's what happened to David. He's the wire. God's electric kindness has shocked his heart. Well, now that we've seen this surprising desire, I want us to zero in on the surprising candidate of David's desire. We know a little bit already, but a servant named Ziba tells David, reminds him of four things about this candidate of kindness. First, there is somebody left in Saul's house. Second, there is somebody left who is a a son of your your friend, Jonathan. Third, this person is disabled and he's crippled in feet. And fourth, this person is from Lodabar. Now, all but one of those things underlines the undeserving nature of this person. It's true, David, that your friend Jonathan does have a son alive. That's good, but it's probably the only good thing about this person you're looking for. The person is in Saul's family, your enemy, The person is disabled and crippled in feet. And people with disabilities weren't always looked on with compassion. It's going to be a drain on you if you bring this person in. And third, the person is from Lodabar. Now, we don't know the exact location, but the place is associated with the headquarters of Saul's now deceased son, Ispasheth. So this person is not only a descendant of Saul, but he's been hanging out in a known stronghold of Saul. Now, I don't know for sure. But with these kinds of details, it's almost as if this servant Ziba is cautioning David about going down this line, finding somebody like this. This is who it is. And moreover, did you notice the one thing the narrator doesn't reveal at this point? What is it? What I want to know is, what's their name? By withholding the name the dramatic tension of the story increases in order to keep the focus on the kind of person David is seeking to show kindness to. To put it simply, this person is a faceless, nameless nobody from nowhere, from Lodabar, that means no word or thing. He's a disabled descendant from your enemy. 
Here's the startling and surprising candidate of David's desire. And now we're going to turn and pick up the action and come to the high point of the story. Let's pick up and read in verse 5 and 6, because here's the highest point of tension in in the story. And the king sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel and Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. Now, what a moment in the story. We finally get to meet this mysterious person and we find out two things. First, we find out this is a man. And secondly, his his name is Mephibosheth. And for a moment now, maybe we have a flashback. Because the day that Mephibosheth's father and grandfather died in battle was the same day that Mephibosheth became crippled in his feet. What an awful day that was for Mephibosheth. A day he wants to forget, but his crippled feet won't let him ever forget that the day you were crippled is the day you lost your dad and your grandfather. And you crippled, remember that. Because 2 Samuel 4 records that in the immediate panic after the death of Jonathan and King Saul, a nurse picks up Mephibosheth and she flees in terror. And he's just a little boy of five years of age because they could be slaughtered next. But as she scoops him up and she runs, she trips and she falls. And as she falls, the body of this little five-year-old boy hits the ground and something snaps, maybe in his spine, and he's crippled for life. He was five years old. And now in 2 Samuel 9, we'll learn that Mephibosheth now stands as old enough here. He has a son. He's old enough now in this chapter that he has his own son named Micah. So from five years of age until now, a decade, two decades, two decades, three decades, that's how long he's been crippled. And his disability is a constant reminder of the day that King Saul, his grandfather, died and Jonathan, his dad, died. Now at that very moment, All these years later, the man his grandfather tried to kill is now the king. And that king has found him in Lodabar and said, you have to appear in the king's court. So what do you suppose will happen? How do you think, what do you think Mephibosheth might be thinking at this moment? What do you think he feels? A crippled man of Saul's house in King David's palace. Now, here's what you usually do in another historical record. There's an Assyrian king named Assurbanipal. Here's what he writes so others would fear. To those who plotted against me, quote, I I fed their corpses, cut into small pieces to dogs and pigs and vultures and also the fish of the sea. Delightful. Mephibosheth can wonder, will that now happen to me? I'm crippled, the house of Saul. No wonder he comes in in verse 6 and he immediately falls on his face. What a sight. Before David is, is the only remaining son of his best friend, Jonathan. But also the last known survivor of the man who tried to kill him, who also took David's first wife from him. And Saul's grandson, and as a crippled heap, 
in the throne room of the king face down. And if you keep looking closely enough, the flesh of Mephibosheth's neck is certainly exposed to the king. And as his neck is exposed, do you think it could tempt the hands of David that cut off Goliath's head to take another two-fisted sword swing and do it again to this man? This is the highest point of tension in the story. What will happen? And what you expect now is like that famous moment from Princess Bride. David should step forward and say, hello, my name is David of Bethlehem. Your grandfather tried to kill me. Prepare to die. That's what you expect. Well, here's the tension of the story. Now, listen, we have a bit of cognitive release as readers because we know David's motives at the beginning of the story. But Mephibosheth doesn't know that's David's motive. Put yourself in the story. Follow the way the narrators crafted it. Put yourself. What do you think Mephibosheth expects to happen next? Mephibosheth expects to happen next. It's a tongue tie. Okay, so verse 7. Let's read the rest of the story as the tension resolves and the falling action goes to a new resolution. Here we go. He's on the floor, face down, neck exposed. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father and you shall eat at my table always I'm going to take a time out here time out now Miss Layla does a fantastic job every week in the order of worship and this week there are four panels if you can draw moms and dads you can draw too but I want to see your picture if you do that four panels of what David did to Mephibosheth Wells I'm counting on you. I told Wit earlier. Wit, counting on you. Okay, what did David do to Mephibosheth? I see you too, Maisie. Right here. Pictures, right? All right. So here's the picture. Do not fear. I'll show you kindness. I'll restore all the land. You shall always eat at my table. Now let's keep the story going. And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should so regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all of his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Well, that's a big ordeal, so it's a good thing Mephibosheth. Ziba has 15 sons and 20 servants. He's up to the task. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord commands his servant, so will your servant do. Now highlight this and underline it. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. He not only ate like a king, He's treated like a king. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. And for a final time, so we don't forget who's getting this kindness. Now remember, he was lame in both feet. David does what's unexpected, doesn't he? First, he immediately calms Mephibosheth's 
fears. Verse 7, do not fear. Now, I don't know, but I wonder if it's one of the few or only times in his life that someone told Mephibosheth not to be afraid. The nursemaid picks him up in fear. As a son of Saul, he's a marked man as David's dynasty rolls into the throne and he dare not wander outside of Lodabar. But now the king, the one whom no one would blame for executing vengeance, that very king says in front of the court, do not fear. And then David lets crippled Mephibosheth in on his plans. Do not fear because I want to show third time kindness to you. And David tells us two main ways he's going to show kindness to this man, Mephibosheth. First, I'm going to give you an inheritance as if Saul were still alive and you were a king. That's the middle of verse 7. Note how generous David is with his kindness. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. He repeats that to Ziba. Here's the undeserved, generous kindness of God's king. Now, you could think, Well, maybe this is a bit of a cruel joke. I mean, giving a man with a disability lots of land that's fit for a king, it might be a little cruel. How do you expect him to keep up all the land? Well, David's made a provision for that too. He tells Zeba in verses 9 and 10, you have 15 sons and 20 servants, and I want you to till the land and work it and bring all the land, the fruit of the labor to Mephibosheth. You and yours are going to keep the land from... Behold the provision, the undeserved, generous kindness, the provision of God's king's kindness to Mephibosheth. But David's not done showing kindness. He's not done showing God's kindness. Now, he simply could have given Mephibosheth all that belonged to Saul and his house and say, now listen, bro, depart in peace. I mean, no longer you're confined to Lodibar. Go now, live like a king on the king's land and have all the king's servants serving you. Go in peace. But God's king has more kindness to share. The second way David shows kindness, he makes it more personal for him. That was Saul's. Take it. But then he says, you shall eat at my table, not for one and one night only. You will eat at my table always. Now listen, just as the word kindness appears three times in this chapter, one, three, and seven, the fact that Mephibosheth will eat at David's table always appears three times as well. Verse nine, then it appears in the middle of verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. And then in verse 13, he always ate at the king's table. Why am I making that point? I think here's what's going on here in the flow. With the word kindness appearing three times and the mention of Mephibosheth eating at the king's table three times, that's the heart of David's surprising kindness with this man. In other words, Mephibosheth is no longer a stranger or a guest. As the song goes, he's like a child at home. Or in the words that we sang this morning, what's at the heart of David's kindness is that this one, once an enemy, is now seated at his table. And we say, Jesus, thank you. Now you see this picture? This is the heart of the kindness. The surprising kindness of God's king has turned a sinner into a saint, 
an enemy into a friend, a stranger into a child at the family meal. That's biblical hospitality. We talked about it a bit as we talk with our friends and neighbors that we will need to show them hospitality. The word hospitality in the Bible is a compound word that literally means loving strangers. David has turned a stranger into a friend. But there's not only biblical hospitality. Can I push it? There's gospel hospitality. David's surprising kindness, his gospel hospitality, hasn't turned an enemy into a friend. It's turned an enemy into a family member. Mephibosheth ate at David's table, verse 11, like he was one of David's own sons. That's the gospel that brings us all the way home and all the way in. And in the actions of David now, behold the heart of God. Remember, David told us the hermeneutical key in verse three, big word, I'm sorry, a big, a big way to understand what's going on is verse three, that, that, that he's doing all of this because he wants people to see the kindness of God, verse three. Is there anyone left in the family line of my enemy that I can show God's kindness to? Sometimes we think often, only, or mainly of God as a king, as a judge. And he is. Let us never forget 2 Samuel 7 and Uzzah. But God is slow to anger. But what he abounds in Exodus 34 is steadfast love. Or we could say this, what abounds in the heart of God, he abounds with kindness. How about that? When we come to God, we have to come like Mephibosheth, face down in fear with what we don't deserve and what we really deserve. That is right and it's good. Tremble before God who made you and of whom you owe your life. And yet what those get who do what Mephibosheth did is the surprising response Fear not. It's ferocious kindness. Sometimes we are more severe with ourselves than God is. And he says, I told you, fear not. Has your heart been melted by the kindness of God? We must receive mercy from God Before our hearts are softened. Do you need mercy from God? Here's how Charles Swindoll captures this scene that played out the rest of Mephibosheth's life. He captures dinner time in David's household. I'll read it to you. What a story of God's unmerited favor. With little imagination, we can picture a familiar scene in the king's royal residence. Gold and silver fixtures held the flaming torches that lined the palace walls. Lofty, hand-carved wooden ceilings crowned each spacious room, including the banquet hall where David and his family gathered for their evening meals. In one chair sat tanned, handsome Absalom with his long, raven-black locks of hair. 
Next to him sat his beautiful sister, Tamar. Across from her sat the young and brilliant, probably precocious Solomon. It's supper time. The call has gone out to all in the family to gather together around the table. As David scans the room to make sure all the kids are present, he notices one person is missing. It isn't long before everyone can hear a sound they've now grown accustomed to hearing. A young man appears and slowly shuffles to his place. Finally, he's there. It's Mephibosheth, of course, seated now at the king's table alongside all the other members of David's royal family. And once seated, the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. And we are reassured of the king's grace as we read in verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's son all the days of his life. Now, friends, it's not hard to see where this goes, is it? And I've withheld mentioning much of it because I want the the speculation to be going in your own mind, anticipation and tension to build in your hearts. That's the purpose of the story. And in beholding now the surprising kindness of David, God's king, we're beholding the kindness of a better king, aren't we? In the kindness of David, God's king, we behold the kindness of God's son. And king. The story of Mephibosheth really happened. It's not simply an allegory. It showed all who lived then what a rare king God's chosen king was. David was just and kind, unlike anybody. And it encouraged everybody in that day and later to fall on their face like Mephibosheth and put their trust in God's king, God's kind. And it's for us today. But God's king isn't David. The chosen king is Jesus. Because the final point of the story is in surprising the, in seeing the surprising kindness of God's king and seeing his surprising kindness, we this, we see the surpassing kindness of God and giving us Jesus a better king. Because when the fullness of time had come, God loved a world in opposition to him like this. He gave his only son. In the loving kindness of God, he sent forth his son to redeem Mephibosheths like you and me from the curse of the law to sit at his table. Now, this is here, but... I want to keep the laser focus. We can read 2 Samuel 9 and we might think the main point is to be like David and show kindness. Now, if you do, I'm going to say you're identifying with the wrong person in the story. We are not David in 2 Samuel 9. We are Mephibosheth in the story. 
who needs a king, God's king, to do this for us. So what the story asks then, and especially now is, are you Mephibosheth? Here is the love of God, that while we were still Mephibosheth's, Christ died for us. You see, in 2 Samuel 9, what we see, it reveals our desperate, crippled condition before God. We are descendants of the enemy, crippled in our soul. We need a king to be kind to us. And in 2 Samuel 9, next week, Lord willing, we will have the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a command. Don't miss the Lord's Supper. It's a sin to miss the Lord's Supper if you can be here. We have a preview in 2 Samuel 9 of the Lord's Supper, don't we? And in 2 Samuel 9, we have a preview of the marriage supper of the Lamb when a king greater than David bids us come and dine. And it's not simply a tablecloth that covers our feet, but the righteousness of Christ that covers all our sin. In 2 Samuel 9, opening God's kind heart. That's what's happening. And until, can I go back to McLaren's illustration? Until the electric love of his kindness shocks your heart, you will never live. We must receive mercy from God before our hearts are Made alive. So here's my challenge. Real simple. Stare into the kind heart of God if you dare. Stare deep into the kindness of His heart and live. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Love has bid you welcome. Do not draw back and say I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me a sinner condemned unclean oh how marvelous oh how wonderful is my Savior's love to me come and die at the table of the kind